Hello, and welcome to the Silver Screen Superheroes Podcast. I am your host, Alex Case, sitting in for Blaine Dowler. This month, I am discussing Blade 2, written by David S. Goyer, and directed by Guillermo del Toro. And the third film of del Toro's that we'll be talking about in the Silver Screen Superheroes Podcast, and the final film. We'll get back to him some on the Bureau 42 Master uh, audio feed in the science fiction and fantasy uh, film tournament categories. Blade, the first film, did okay at the box office, but really made money on home video, enough that they greenlit a sequel. And so, David S. Goyer was once again brought back to, to write the script. Wesley Snipes was brought back to star as Blade. And over, instead of Stephen Norrington directing the film, we got Guillermo del Toro, who had his own series of successful films, uh, sorry, well, but successful film, but string of successful films at this point. Goyer has the sole written credit, by the way, though Del Toro had his own degree of input, not enough for writing credit. At this point, he had directed, among other films, uh, The Devil's Backbone, Mimic, and Kronos. So the film picks up several years after the events of the first Blade film. Blade has been looking for Whistler, who determined to still be alive and in the custody of the vampires. We also learn that Whistler still had, that there is a cure now for vampirism, that Blade's associate from the first film, Dr. Jensen, had developed a cure successfully, and we see Blade use it here on Whistler. Whistler has, or Blade in the meantime, has a new assistant named Scott, who is a young gentleman as opposed to uh, Whistler. Chris Christopherson once again returns as Whistler, and Scud is played by a young Norman Reedus. Reedus is now best known for his work later in The Rock Walking Dead, and somewhat through his abortive associations with Hideo Kojima, or rather the failed Silent Hills game. We'll see what comes out of Death Stranding. As of this recording, Death Stranding has not yet been released, or even really been established as much of a game. We learn that the Vampire Nation, for lack of a better term, has put together a hit squad for the purpose of taking out Blade, known as the Blood Pack. However, a greater threat has emerged in terms of a new form of vampire called the Reapers, which feed on vampires and humans alike, and spread with a 100% infection rate as opposed to voluntary turning, making them like a bastard hybrid of zombies and vampires. So the leader of the Vampire Nation, or at least the leader of the vampires in this film, Eli Damaskinos, basically calls a truce with Blade. Blade and the Blood Pack will take on and destroy the Reapers, because if they don't, then the Reapers will wipe out the vampires and then turn on the humans. And this is, at this time, the best chance to take the Reapers out. The original Reaper is a vampire known as Jared Nomak. Uh, Damaskinos is played by an actor named Thomas Kretschmann. Kretschmann is a German actor who's generally best known for, well, German cinema. Of his few Western films that he's done, he's appeared in Wanted, he's appeared in King Kong, the 2005 film. He has appeared in the Hitman Agent 47 film. He And probably his most recognizable superhero role although it's an extremely minor role compared to this one, and one with 
much less makeup to it than this film is in Captain America the Winter Soldier as Baron Wolfgang von Strucker and also playing Strucker in Age of Ultron in a more significant role on the full role for the first act of the film. The Blood Pack themselves are made up of Chupa, played by Luke, by Matt Schulz, I apologize for Magdalene's name, Assad, played by Danny John Jules, Snowman, played by Don Yen, who is also the film's fight choreographer, Nissa Damaskinos, Eli's daughter, played by Leonor Varela, Reinhardt, played by Ron Perlman, his second appearance in the uh, Silver Screen Super, oh, third appearance in the Silver Screen Superheroes feed, all of them in films directed by Ron Perlman, and we'll be seeing more of him in the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament and the Greatest Fantasy Film Tournament feed as well. Lighthammer, played by Daz Crawford, Verlaine, played by Marit Vilkil, and Priest, played by Tony Curran. Of these, a lot of them don't have much screen presence and dialogue. Diane gets a bit of a fight scene, but not as much as I think the character really merits, and or rather the actor merits. Donnie Yen is a spectacular martial arts actor, but to a certain degree, with Yen doing the fight choreography for the film, he's already made his mark in that regard. Uh, the rest of the Blood Pack, Reinhardt, Nissa, Damaskin, um, Nissa, and Assad have the rest of the remaining significant roles. The rest of the characters are wiped out a little more summarily. Some sooner than others. Only Priest is killed in the first fight, big fight with Blade and the Blood Pack against the Reapers. Priest, um, Priest played by Tony Curran, as mentioned. His filmography probably best known with a certain degree of voice acting work. He has played Captain McMillan in Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3. He was in Pillars of the Earth as Steven. He played Vincent. It's probably the most significant role. Uh, listeners will know him as, in Vincent and the Doctor and the Pandora Opens, which really has much more of his acting depth to it. And definitely shows much more of his talent there than there in, and in Pillars of the Earth and in this film. For the rest of the class, Daz Crawford is a former American gladiator. Uh, it was Diesel, for those familiar with the show. He also had a, a brief recurring role in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as Kibo, keeping up the Marvel connection. Verlaine's actress, Marit Vilkil... Kili is from Norway and has a very short filmography with this being her first role. As mentioned, Donnie Yen has a massive martial arts film filmography. Looking at his IMDb credits, he has 70 films to his name and he's a lead role in a lot of them. He's been in Shopai Long, aka Killzone, as Ma Quan. He's in Dragon Tiger Gate as Dragon Wong. He's been, oh, he's Commander Land and Munch Upon the Chime in China 2, which is an excellent film. He is Ip Man in the Ip Man series of films. Yeah, he's he's a big name actor in, in, in martial arts film circles, which is, makes his lack of presence in this film so notable. His work in the choreography makes up for the sum, but his work in the choreography is more in the how the fights are structured and less in how they're shot and while Guillermo del Toro does a good job with shooting these fight scenes, it's not quite as doesn't quite work as well as, for example, something like The Matrix, where they shot their fight scenes in the Hong Kong style, where the fight choreographer doesn't just choreograph the fights and set up the fights. He also the choreographer also 
plays a role in camera placement and camera movement during the fight scenes to make sure that the elements of the fight are most visible. This has been something that's been going on in martial arts films basically ever since Bruce Lee. Part of the reason why Bruce Lee kind of structured the fights the way he did is by doing is doing them doing the structure of one opponent at a time as opposed to if you look at some older Shaw films, massive opponents at once, is you get a better sense of the skill of the martial artist as they're actually able to do you're able to see what they're doing and also maintain a degree of cohesion in the fight scene so you can see who's fighting who and what and maintain a sense of geography of the fight scene. We lose some of that here where we get too many close-up shots which don't do quite as well to keep the craft in the frame, so to speak. We on the rest of the Blood Pack actors, Danny John Jules. He is the bartender in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Okay, no, I'm sorry. He was in... Uh, it was a background character in Lockstock and Two Smoking Car- Barrels. It's a fa- rather infamous one. He's the one who is set on fire by um, by Rory Breaker. But probably his more significant role, and the role which I'm pretty sure most people listening to this podcast will know him as, is as Cat from Red Dwarf for the complete run of Red Dwarf. It is actually kind of interesting seeing his background as being more in comedy and then seeing the very serious action role here, where he's absolutely not a comedic character at all. As far as the remainder of the Blood Pack goes, Matt Scholes was in the Transporter films. He played, or at least the first Transporter film, he played the antagonist character, uh, well, one of the antagonist characters on Wall Street, as he was known in the script. His most recent film role was in Fast Five. He also appeared in The Fast and the Furious, the original Fast and Furious. Both films playing the character of Vince. Can't speak for the Diz. He also appeared in the first Blade as the character of Kreese, who I do not recall. He could possibly make a headcanon that his character was that Chupa and Kreese are the same person. And there's just a change of street name in there. As far as the film's production history goes, the this script was kind of shopped around a bunch. And a bunch of different concepts. Uh, there were plans for Morbius to be the antagonist, Morbius the Living Vampire, instead of the new character of Jared Nomak. But ultimately, they decided to keep the Marvels, they to keep the rights of De Morbius for possibly his own film, which has, as of this t- recording, not come to pass. Steven Norrington had been offered to do the sequel, but turned down the offer. Considering that the, what we got instead of Blade 2 was League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is also the last film that Norrington has directed, I think Norrington may have made the wrong decision. But that said, I like Guillermo del Toro's direction on this. In fact, I'd say that this is the best film in the trilogy. So I will... I, I don't object with what we got. I... Do you think that Norrington may have regretted the choice? Reportedly, Goyer had been a fan of Del Toro's work, along with uh, producer Peter Frankfurt, since his work on Kronos, and wanted to work with him since then. Additionally, Del Toro brought on board Mike Mignola as a production designer. Mignola, as you may recall from the Hellboy episodes, is the creator of Hellboy. And Mignola had worked in, in film on a production design standpoint before, including most notably on Francis Ford Coppola's film adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Snipes uh, apparently does a certain amount of input on 
how Blade would work as a character during shooting. We'll see this get out of control in Blade Trinity, but that's for the future. Del Toro spoke quite highly of Snipes' performance as Blade, and they certainly got along well enough that when the time came to do a DVD commentary, they recorded the commentary together. There are a few scenes for the movie that were shot that were cut. There was a scene shot of the film where we see Blade's first meeting with Whistler in flashback that was meant to be used in the film itself. Instead, we get a snippet of that in the opening credits of the film where Whistler, rather, where Blade recounts, gives his origin story in brief through monologue over images of the previous film and a little bit of Blade just getting ready for combat. As far as the film itself goes, Del Toro does a good job here. I mean, Del Toro is an excellent director. And the only real complaints I have are due to a couple things that Del Toro does, which where I think Del Toro, well, either was, was using technology that was hadn't quite reached its full level of polish and potential yet, and areas where arguably as a director, Del Toro could use a bit more practice. And I, I think this is a situation where Del Toro's working into shooting these type of things for the first time and had shot stuff like this before. The first is the fight scenes. As I mentioned before, one of the things I can tell as someone who's watched a lot of martial arts films made in the West and made in the East and films that are made in the West that are shot better than other films is when a director who's experienced in other genres tries to shoot a martial arts fight and tries to make it look dynamic and rapid in movement, when they're not trying to do something like the Born Identity style shaky cam, what sometimes happens is they go, oh, I want to zoom in. I want to see what people are doing with the hands. I want to see what people are doing with the upper body portion and put that as the focus of the frame. And in the process, what happens is you see a blur of motion and you can't tell who's doing what. And the, the goal is clearly... I want to show off how good these people are at the fight scene. I want to show how good the work is on the fight scene and show off the craft that we've done. But what you get instead is chaos, confusion, and particularly if you have a perhaps darkly lit environment, as we have with some of these fight scenes, a difficulty of telling who is doing what. It's particularly bad, again, if you have darkly lit locations, as you have fight scenes in the dark, or characters who are all wearing black. Blade wearing his black trench coat with black gloves. I'm really with a red lining, but still black trench coat, black gloves, black undershirt, or black body armor underneath on one side, and the blood pack all in black in the other. Or Jared Nomak in dark colored kind of grubby, almost describe a sort of homeless person outfit on the other side. So that doesn't work as well. Other problem is this is one of the earliest films that I'm aware of to use the concept of the digital stunt double, a CGI-created character that has that that is basically serves in the complete place of a stunt of a human stunt double. This is something where we see this later in the Matrix sequels, particularly in Matrix Reloaded, and we see it used here in a certain degree in darkly lit environments. In some cases, it works, but a, but. In a lot of other places, it doesn't, and it looks out of place and feels fake. And part of this is because the CGI isn't quite there yet, unfortunately. Even now, digital doubles don't necessarily work as well, and you don't see them as much anymore in film, for as full-person digital stunt doubles. 
If you do see them, it's for quick quick shots for where a prosthetic would not be suitable, such um, or a practical effect would not be suitable for damage being done to a human body. For example, in the film Fury, where a character's upper torso is shot off by a tank by a tank round, as a example. The effects were done by Tippett Studio, which is run by Phil Tippett, so I think that helps make the make deal with some of the issues. Because one of their problems you kids run into with digital doubles is the movements look wrong, and Phil and you're dealing with a team basically put together a, co- a company put together basically by Phil Tippett, who has big background a big background in puppeteering and making movements look natural and right, and I see them making this work. At least the expertise that they're bringing to the table, counteracting any unnatural movements that we'd be getting. As far as the film itself fared at the box office, once again. Our rule of thumb is the gross needs to be approximately equal to twice the budget, or the estimated budget. The film has a production budget, according to Box Office Mojo, of $54 million, and a domestic total gross of approximately $82 million. So we're almost at twice just on the domestic. The foreign gross pushes it over, the foreign gross being just under half of the total gross. 53% domestic, 46%, about 49%, not 49%, 47% foreign, actually. So the worldwide gross is $155 million. Now, a portion of that foreign gross goes to the foreign distributors, because depending at the time this was, it's shifted a little bit now, a little bit, a lot now. In the past, you'd have foreign, you'd have companies handling their, having their foreign distribution be done by, by different companies, I believe. Shaw Brothers, for example, handled the, foreign distribu- handled the foreign distribution for Blade Runner in Hong Kong. That was part of the deal with Run Run Shaw that helped get him fund the film. Get him to fund the film. So this film absolutely made its money back, and this film was also very generally well regarded. The your Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half stars out of four. The film currently on Rotten Tomatoes has a fifty-seven percent rating for all critics. A little lower for top critics, but I think it's one of those cases where the critics panned it in one panned it in one way, but you know, may have panned it, but the audiences definitely enjoyed it, and the audience rating is a more of sixty eight percent. And as far again, as far as my thoughts on the film go, this is my favorite film in the series. It is definitely worth watching. It doesn't stand alone well enough where I'd say just only watch this one, or it's okay to come in right here. It's worth it to see the first Blade as well. My other real criticism I have is kind of a representation one. The first film had a very strong African-American presence. And by the fact of being a film with a white director and a lot of white cast and crew, there is a sense of Blade moving in very heavy African-American circles. And the, the supporting cast on Blade's side, with the exception of Whistler, were all black people. Whether minor characters like the person who Blade got the ingredients for his serum from, or... The main supporting interest, the audience perspective character for the film, uh, Dr. Jensen. Here, I mean, we have the same number of people of color in the film's script. We have Blade. We have Linoa Varela, um, who plays Nissa, who is from Chile. We have Danny John Jules. But this, otherwise, this cast is really white. Um, I get that we're in Eastern Europe, 
when the where this film is set and where this film is shot. But there are people of color in Eastern Europe. I'm just saying. It would have been a nice touch. I do see that the film has a stronger African-American presence on the soundtrack with a lot of electronica and hip-hop work on here. A major track featured in the film is Eye Against Eye by Mos Def and Massive Attack. We'll be discussing Mos Def's acting performance later with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy live-action film. We have Rhymes, Ice Cube, and so forth. So, and this one was definitely worth checking out. And next month, we will conclude my run in Silver Screen Superheroes and the Blade series with Blade Trinity where we will have some interesting things to discuss about how that film came to be. Until the next time, please rate the podcast on your podcasting site of choice, be it iTunes, be it Google Play, boy, be it wherever you choose to go. And please tell your friends about the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>